as you get yourself uh, seated there. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 3. As I mentioned last week, we're going to overlap a little bit with last week's passage. So we're going to start in verse 15 and work our way down to 38. And so if you on a device or if you've got a Bible in front of you there, if you want to open up to the middle of Luke chapter 3, that's where we're going to be. As you get settled, I want to just make kind of a, a quick announcement. Um, we, at the end of 2020, uh, we, we talked about the fact that our missions pastor, Joe Stewart, was stepping off of staff so that he and his family can prepare. They're going to go out into, uh, out into the mission field here in the coming months. And so he was stepping off, and I mentioned that we would tell you what our plan was in that position. And so that's what I want to kind of share for a minute here. Missions, specifically cross-cultural missions uh, among unreached people groups, that's a passion for us here at LCF. It's one of the five, being mission-driven is one of the five kind of core marks of a, of a follower of Jesus that we've laid out. And in our missions uh, ministry and within that missions pastor role, we want to make sure that we're underscoring the uh, value of missions here. And for a season, uh, we probably would have moved that role full-time already, but it worked best for Joe and his family and and what they had going on and preparing for what they're going to do in the future to be in a part-time capacity. Then enter 2020 in the pandemic and Joe stepping off of staff. And now we want to move to a full-time pastor in that missions role, but we also want to be wise and continue to be careful with how we're monitoring and managing the budget um, as we make our way through this very prolonged period here with COVID. And so our goal as it stands right now, and this could shift, but our goal as it stands right now would be that in like the second quarter, of the year to hire a full-time missions pastor, which would give us these first three or four months or so to kind of see what the budget is doing. And then, you know, if, if we feel confident about that, bring in a full-time pastor into that missions position, which means that here for a few months, what are we doing to cover the gap? And that is that Ben Wagner, who has been a part of our church for quite some time, he's been on the missions team for a number of years. He um, is kind of doing like an interim thing for us and covering about 10 hours a week to just lead the missions team, continue to care for our missionaries who are out in the field and put together some opportunities here in the near future. Like there's going to be an evangelism training coming up and we're looking toward the fall and some things for that. And he's continuing to provide some leadership for that sort of from within the the missions team. And then assuming everything budget-wise goes well, we'll bring someone in full-time uh, in the spring, in the late spring, let's say. And so that's what's happening there. We wanted to be able to communicate that to you. If you know Ben, if you see him, they're usually at third service. Um, if you see him or have a chance to interact with him and just offer him some encouragement as he steps into that leadership role for us, we're in the process right now of like figuring out what do those 10 hours look like and how does he allocate them best and not being here in the office, how do we communicate well? And he's doing a phenomenal job. And so that is who is kind of temporarily leading for us within our missions ministry with the goal of having a full-time person in the spring. Sound good? Awesome. Let's pray and then we'll jump into Luke chapter three. God, thanks for this morning, um, the chance to gather together as a church family and just proclaim hallelujah, praise the one who set us free. Uh, God, I'm grateful for this 
body to get to do that alongside. I'm grateful for the work that you do in and through this church to the nations. Um, whether that be people from this congregation who have gone to serve out in the field or people in this congregation who give or pray or are involved in our cross-cultural efforts uh, in various ways, God, um, that is a blessing to the nations. It's a blessing to this congregation, Lord, and we're thankful for it. And we just want to pray right now for our missionaries that are out in the field. Um, God, it is so hard to leave behind everything you know and to go and serve in a foreign culture uh, among a foreign people. And so, God, we pray that you would give our missionaries in various places around the world persistence. Um, God, that you would give them a sense of peace and cer- a continued certainty in their calling and what it is that you have them doing. God, we pray that you would bear fruit in their ministry, that you would draw people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to yourself that they might then be able to turn around and share the beauty and the glory of the gospel with their own people. And God, would you continue to use our church? Would you continue to lead and guide us into new places where we can do ministry among people who have not heard the gospel that they might be saved and might proclaim the goodness of Jesus in their own culture? God, it's a gift to get to do that as a church. And I pray that it's one that we don't tire of, that we don't lose sight of. I pray it's one that we never stop pressing into and pushing forward within. God, thank you for your word. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would your spirit move among us? God, display for us afresh or for the very first time the beauty of Jesus and what he has done in our place, Lord. Would you stir our affections for Christ? Would you shift everything else to the side and make much of the gospel here among us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Kurt, if you would stand up. Kurt's wearing a Bill's Mafia t-shirt. Yes, sir. sir. You can sit. Um, I put him up to that, but I didn't have to work very hard. Uh, And I put him up to that because I wanted to make uh, a living illustration out of Kurt. You know how Jesus talks about like 99 sheep and then there's this one that goes astray? (laughs) That's not the illustration. It could be, but it's it's not the illustration. The illustration is this. We're all very willing and very comfortable to publicly identify with stuff things that we love or things that we support. We're willing to wear hats or t-shirts to get bumper stickers, car decals, yard signs, all of those sorts of things for sports teams or colleges, for different brands that we support, our kids' activities, our favorite stores or coffee shops or whatever the case might be. We're pretty willing to say, this is a thing that I love, and then to like plaster it on ourselves in some way, shape, or form, such as the Bills Mafia or more readily in here, all the red that I see out here today. When you love or support something, it's natural for us to make that love, that support publicly known. This morning, if you just kind of look at Luke chapter 3 sitting open there in front of you, we're going to start with the baptism that John is doing out in the wilderness, and then there's the baptism of Jesus, and God speaks in the middle of that, and then there's this genealogy that Luke gives us of Jesus. And it's all got one point, and it's that this is like the final push that Luke makes in the early part of his gospel to make unmistakably clear the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is this man? He is the Son of God. 
And Luke is going to make that abundantly clear in this public identification of Jesus. And kind of the larger point for us this morning is that baptism is all about identification. It's all about identifying ourselves with Jesus. John calls people out into the wilderness in his baptism to make a public identification. Jesus makes this public identification when he gets baptized. God publicly identifies his son. Luke gives a genealogical identification of who Jesus is. And it leaves us with this clear application for our own lives surrounding our own willingness and obedience in publicly identifying with Christ. That's where we're headed this morning. Rather than reading the whole passage all at once, we're going to take this in pieces so we can kind of see this play out in its various stages. And so I'm going to start in verse 15, which we looked at last week, and read down to verse 20. This is John the Baptist's baptism. It says this, Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else, and he locked John up in prison." I mentioned when we first started the, the gospel of Luke here that not everything is exactly chronological, that Luke's intent is theological and things move fairly chronologically, but you get to the end of verse 20 here and it appears that John is in prison and then John is baptizing Jesus in verse 21. So there's a point that Luke is trying to make that at the end of John's ministry, he gets put into prison, but Jesus arrives in the middle of John's ministry. So don't let that kind of get you caught or stuck. Luke is giving us kind of a summary picture here, and he puts the end of the summary before a detail that happens in the middle of it. That's verses 20 to 21. Last week, I said we would deal with kind of specific questions about John's baptism. What is it? What's going on? What does it mean? How does it differ from the baptism that we experience today? Well, John's baptism called people to identify with the mercy of God rather than the lineage of Israel. John's baptism, like we talked about last week, called Jewish people to come out and humbly admit that their their lineage, their heritage, their Jewishness would not save them, that their being able to keep the law would not save them. You need to repent because you've been unperfect in this. And that baptism offers an outward symbol of one's commitment to the mercy of God to save them and to their repentance from their sin. It publicly identifies them as having placed their security not in their birth heritage, but instead in God's mercy to forgive their sins by another means. And that other means would be the one who is coming that's more powerful than John through the Messiah. In this way, John's baptism was an outward picture of the reality of the coming work of Jesus. John's baptism is forward-looking. When we get baptized today, it is backward-looking. And that is the nature of salvation in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, a person was saved because they were looking forward to a Messiah, to a Savior, placing all their hope, all their security on that coming work. We are saved on this side of the cross by looking backward to the Messiah who has come, Jesus, and placing all of our security and all of our hope 
upon him. And so John calls people out into the wilderness, lets them know that they're sinning, lets them know that their heritage won't save them, lets them know that they need to repent, and then does this baptism as an outward picture of that, that they would publicly be willing to say, God's mercy is the thing that's going to save me and nothing else. Not the fact that I'm Jewish, that my lineage is from Abraham, not the fact that I try to keep the law, it is God's mercy that will save me. And then here comes Jesus. And in the Gospel of Luke, you get two phrases, one sentence. It's only half a verse about Jesus being baptized. Verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. That's the whole account that Luke gives us of Jesus' baptism. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they offer us one complementary picture of like one unified picture of who Jesus is. But it's like when you go and you try on something at the store and you walk out of the dressing room and you go to the spot where there are like multiple mirrors and you stand there so you can see this thing you've got on from every angle and make sure that it makes you look perfect from like every vantage point. The Gospels do that for us with Jesus. They give us four different pictures that present one complete picture of who Jesus is. They're complementary. They don't contradict one another, but they often show us different aspects of the same things. And so that's true with Jesus's baptism. At his baptism, Jesus identifies with the place of sinners, but not with the plight of sinners. And each of the four gospel writers gives us an account. Matthew 3, 13 to 15. Matthew describes it this way. Then Jesus came up from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. In the gospel of John, chapter one, verses 29 to 31, we're told this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. Mark's account of Jesus's baptism in Mark chapter one is very similar to Luke's. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. What is the complete picture here? Jesus was baptized not because he had sin that needed to be forgiven. Remember, that's what John is doing out in the wilderness. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Be baptized. Commit yourselves to the mercy of God. Walk in that repentance. Jesus has no sin that needs to be forgiven. So we know that he can't be out there to be baptized, that he might repent and have his sin forgiven. Matthew tells us that he was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that the work that John was doing was a necessary part of God's redemptive history and Jesus's baptism affirms that. John tells us that he was baptized that he might be revealed to Israel as the long-awaited Messiah. The picture that Mark and Luke give us is that Jesus was baptized that he might be identified by God and then sent into his ministry in the full power of both God's proclamation, God the Father of who Jesus is, and the Spirit's presence, God the Spirit, with him. And so Jesus' baptism in Luke is like the commencement of Jesus' ministry. Everything in Luke up to this point, or at least in chapter 3, is about John's baptism. 
So here comes Jesus with no sin to repent of in and of himself, and yet he's baptized by John. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He sits in the place of sinners. Walks out to John, gets down into the Jordan River where sinners who need to repent were baptized, and Jesus is willing to publicly identify himself with that place. It's the second time in the Gospels that Jesus has identified himself with humanity in this sort of way. The first is at his birth. He's willing to take on human flesh and come and identify himself with humanity. Then at his baptism, he goes right down into the same water to be baptized by the same person that's calling sinners to repentance. And he identifies with humanity. He's gonna do this one more time in a major way, and that's at the cross. On the cross, the substitution here will be made totally complete. He will willingly and joyfully not only hang in the place of sinners, but he will also experience the full wrath for the plight of sinners. He will take sin upon himself in that moment, and the punishment that we deserve will fall on him. The separation from God that we deserve because of sin will be experienced by him. Our death will be died by him. At his baptism, it's like a public rumbling of what is to come. Jesus sits in the place of sinners here at his baptism, but he has no sin yet in and of himself. At the cross, he will hang in the place of sinners, and all of that sin will be heaped upon him. The baptism is like, his baptism is like the first picture of that. He's identifying himself with sinful humanity. And as he launches out into his ministry, he's going to take his first kind of decisive steps toward the cross. This moment launches him into the wilderness, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then into his ministry at the end of Luke 4, 15, in the power of the Spirit. This confirmation from the Father and the presence of the Spirit sends Jesus into his work, into his ministry, with the presence of the fullness of the Trinity. He's going to take another decisive step toward the cross when he sets his face toward Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9. He'll do another as he decides to enter in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. And then he will take his final steps toward the cross when he carries it up to Calvary. This moment is like a hinge turning point in the life of Jesus. It identifies him with the people he's come to save, foreshadows the history-altering events of the cross, fulfills all righteousness, announces to Israel that the Messiah has come, launches Jesus into his ministry, and as if that's not enough, right in the middle of it, God's voice booms from heaven. Look at verses 21, the second half of 21 and 22. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice from heaven, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Verses 21 and 22 here, God identifies Jesus as his eternally beloved son. The emphasis in Luke's account here in 21 and 22 is actually not on the act of baptism itself, though that is important and Luke makes it clear that this took place. What the emphasis is on is what happens surrounding that baptism. Jesus was praying. That's something Luke is going to come back to over and over and over again, that while Jesus is praying, stuff happens. Jesus is praying, God booms from heaven. Jesus is praying, he calls, he then goes and calls his disciples. Jesus is praying, he gets arrested in the garden. Like that theme is going to happen over and over and over again in the gospel of Luke. And while he's praying here, God speaks. That's what Luke wants to draw our attention to. God wants us to see that as Jesus the Son is praying, 
God the Holy Spirit descends in the physical appearance like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The whole trinity is present here. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son is the recipient of both as he's baptized. And the Father's words are simple and powerful. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the eternal Son of the Father. Jesus did not become the Son when he took on flesh. He's always been the Son. The Father has always been eternally, infinitely, perfectly well pleased with the Son. They've lived in perfect harmony and in perfect unity for all of eternity. And the perfection of that relationship that we see between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gets like visual, audible representation at Jesus' baptism. It's existed in heaven and in eternity for all time. And then at Jesus' baptism, it's like it tumbles out and everybody gets to see it. And how long did the moment last? Like how many people were there? I don't know. But imagine being present, even if it's just John the Baptist and Jesus, when this moment takes place and the Holy Spirit descends and the Father speaks and there's the Son identifying himself in the place of sinners. I mean, what a powerful moment. Put all of that together. And then think about Jesus's ministry. It's got bookends. At the start of it, there's this moment where Jesus is baptized and God speaks from heaven. God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my son. In him, I am well pleased. And then Jesus is gonna go to the cross. He sat in the place of sinners here. He's gonna hang in the place of sinners here. He had no sin in and of himself here. He didn't have it here either, but all the sin of humanity was placed upon him and he cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does God say in return? Nothing. It's total silence. Why? Well, because in that moment, Jesus, for the very first time, experiences a separation from the Father. He's had perfect unity with God the Father for all of eternity. And in that moment, when sin is placed on him, that unity is broken. And Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? This is the eternally beloved son, the presence of humanity's sin upon him, crying out, why have you forsaken me, Father? And God is silent. Those are the bookends to Jesus' ministry. Sits in the place of sinners, no sin in of himself, God the Father is well pleased. Hangs in the place of sinners, humanity's sin placed upon him, God is silent. Jesus, at his baptism, identifies himself with sinners. God, at Jesus' baptism, identifies Jesus as the eternally beloved son. And then, in the height of this moment where all of this is happening, Luke says, now let me give you 76 names. Like, why? It seems like right here, Jesus ought to just get up out of the water and we should jump to chapter four, verse one, where he's full of the Holy Spirit because it just descended and he heads out into the wilderness. In fact, most of us, when we read, Jesus comes up out of the water, right? We see a list of 76 names and we just hop on over to four chapter one because who needs to read those names and I can't pronounce them. That's what typically happens. But when the Bible gives us a genealogy, there's a purpose. What's the purpose here? Here's God from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then Luke says, let me show you. And he gives 76, 77 names if you count Jesus all the way back to 
Adam, the son of God. Now, most of the time we would, probably while we're reading, we would jump over these. It's important that we hear them. All of God's word is valuable for us. So I'm gonna read them all out loud. I'm probably gonna mess a couple of them up, but follow along with me. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. And he was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Jani, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Mattathias, son of Simeon, son of Josek, son of Jonah, Arjoda, son of Joanna, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Kossam, son of uh, Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Malia, son of Minna, son of uh, Matatha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Abed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. What's Luke trying to do? God has just identified Jesus as his beloved son. Luke says, let me show you how this plays out. If you've got the Bible there in front of you and you can flip kind of quickly to the book of Matthew, you'll see that Matthew has a genealogy of Jesus, but it comes right at the beginning. It's just Matthew begins and says an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then Matthew's genealogy seems much more organized. If you just look at it visually, it comes in three groups of 14 different generations starts with Abraham and works forward to Jesus. The reason it starts with Abraham is because Matthew writes for a predominantly Jewish audience and he wants his Jewish readers to be absolutely certain this is the long-awaited son of Abraham that's going to be a blessing to all of the nations. It works its way to David, again, for a Jewish audience. Matthew wants his people to understand, his readers to understand that this is the heir to the throne of David and then ultimately works its way to Jesus. Look at Luke's list. It's much longer. Note that Luke starts with Jesus and works backwards. That as he starts with Jesus and then works down to David, the names from Joseph to David are wildly different here than they are in the Gospel of Luke. And then he doesn't stop at Abraham. He works all the way back to Adam, son of God. Sometimes the best answer you can give for something uh, biblically, theologically is, I don't know. So why are the, are the genealogies in Matthew and Luke different? I don't know. There are some theories. There are three that are most prominent. One is that Luke used the line of Mary going backward, while Matthew used the line of Joseph going backward to David. The second theory is that uh, Joseph's family was like a complicated situation where in Matthew's gospel, it says that Joseph is the son of Jacob. In Luke's gospel, it says that Joseph is the son of Heli, that there was this complicated marriage situation that likely involved the death of someone. And then Jacob, who would have been Joseph's biological father, passed away. Heli marries, takes 
that family and now he's like the legal guardian of Jesus. And then it works backward from Heli, different than backward from Joseph or from Jacob. And the other one is that Luke used the physical descent from David to Joseph while Matthew used the legal line that would have ascended to the throne. The answer to which of those is right is we're not 100% sure. Leon Morris says it this way. In the present state of our knowledge, it is impossible to say which of these is the absolute case or whether there's an even better explanation. Though the third option appears most widely accepted, none can be definitively proven as fact. So I don't want to ignore that these are different, but at the same time, there's not a great answer for why. But the point that Luke is trying to make is not anchored in the names from Joseph to David. It's anchored in the name that ends the list in 38. Son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Luke's aim is not to convince only a Jewish audience, but also a Gentile audience that the coming of the Messiah is good news for all people. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is this uniquely created human who's going to rewrite all of the wrongs of Adam. So think about Adam. God creates Adam from the dirt, a unique creation there. Adam and Eve live in the garden. They're confronted directly by Satan and Adam fails in that confrontation and thus sin enters into the world. Now here comes Jesus. He's the eternally begotten son of God created by the power of God uniquely through the womb of a virgin. He's about to go out into the wilderness and have a direct confrontation with Satan and he is going to triumph in that moment and in every moment after, including when he, ra- when he raises from the grave. And at the end of all things, he's going to come back and he is going to defeat Satan fully and finally. For Luke, this identification of Jesus proclaims to humanity that here is the son of God who is going to prevail in all the ways that Adam, the son of God, failed. And that you can identify yourself not with the sin of Adam, but with the righteousness of Jesus. That's what Luke wants you to see. John the Baptist out in the wilderness calling people, rely on the mercy of God, identify with the mercy of God, not with anything else. Jesus comes out, identifies with sinners, sits in that place despite no sin of his own and God booms from heaven. This is my eternally beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Luke says, you can identify with that instead of with Adam. That's why this genealogy takes place here. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness where he will be victorious over Satan. For Luke, this identification of Jesus proclaims to humanity that there is the son of God who is going to prevail where Adam failed. Whereas Adam brought sin, death, and separation from God into the world, Jesus is going to bring righteousness and life and perfect communion with God. He's gonna blow the doors open to that for all of eternity, for all of humanity. There's the text. The application is clear. It's about baptism. And in baptism, we identify ourselves with Jesus. Baptism on this side of the cross is the opportunity to publicly identify yourself with the soul-saving, life-changing, eternity-transforming grace of God in Jesus. Baptism is something that we do after we have professed our faith in Jesus, received God's grace for our salvation, you then sit in those baptismal waters and you are essentially saying, Christ took my place on the cross, he identified with me and saved me, and now I'm identified with him, being saved by him. That's why the traditional verbiage of baptism is buried with him, with him, 
in baptism, raised to walk with him in the newness of life. Baptism is a public picture of a spiritual reality, that Christ is in you and you are now in him. You are identified with Jesus. It's a public declaration of what God has done for you internally. It's a public identification with the church, with the people of God, a local assembly. It's a public commitment to walking with Jesus and growing in relationship with Jesus. It has a reciprocal component. When someone sits up before us and gets baptized, we as a church are committing to walking alongside that person in their pursuit of Jesus, in their relationship with Jesus. It's important to note that baptism is not what saves you. Baptism was not going to save the people that came out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. They were committing themselves to the mercy of God, nothing else. In baptism, we're making the statement that God's grace and his mercy shown to us in Jesus are the only thing that are going to save us. Nothing about baptism saves you. Baptism is the outward symbol that the grace of God, which is the only thing powerful enough to save, has done so. Baptism requires the humility we talked about last week. The humility to say, my family won't save me, my church attendance won't save me, my goodness won't save me, my, the perfection of my repentance won't save me, only Jesus will. When we get baptized, we make a public identification with the one who has saved us. On March 7th, so like five weeks from now or so, for the first time in a year due to COVID, we're going to baptize people here at church. If you've not ever taken this step of obedience, we want to invite you to do that. If you have a child who's made a public profession of their faith in Christ, then you can reach out to Libby or Catherine, and they're going to do a baptism class on February 21st and February 28th during third service, where they'll talk with you and your child about whether or not they're ready to be baptized. If you have a student, sixth grade, uh, all the way up through college, or you are a student, February 7th, so two weeks from now, in the youth center during second service, Adam and Erica will do the same thing with our students. You can reach out to them if you'd like to take part in that. And if you're an adult who maybe you've just recently come to faith or you came to faith a number of years ago, but you've never taken this step of publicly identifying in front of a local congregation with Jesus and the grace that has saved you, then you can reach out to TA or Kurt or myself and there's gonna be a class on February 21st in the offers conference room during second service and we'd love to talk to you about being baptized. Maybe you sit here this morning and you say, I've already been baptized. What is the application here for me? It's certainly not just to cram your head full of knowledge. The application for those who have been saved and been baptized is that you now rest in the well-pleasing nature of Jesus. Go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They eat the fruit, confronted by Satan, eat the fruit, sin enters into the world. Surely you will die. God's mercy, they walk out of the garden. But also by God's mercy, he makes clothing for them, covers them. Now for us, the punishment should still be the same. If we sin, we will surely die. And we all do sin, so death is what we deserve, but Jesus died it in our place, and now what do we have? The robe of Christ's righteousness given to us. And now when God looks at any who have been saved, he does not see you in your sin. He sees Christ in his righteousness. And so 
God, both right now and when you stand before him, is going to say, this is Michelle, my daughter with whom I am well pleased. And it's going to be because he looks at Michelle and sees the righteousness of Jesus, his eternally beloved son. He's going to look down and say, this is Gage, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it's not going to be because Gage was born into the right family or went to church the right amount of times or walked perfectly according to the law. It's going to be because Jesus' righteousness covers him. And that's available for everyone. And when we stand before Christ, that's why we sing the song, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because if I stand there and God sees me uncovered by the righteousness of Christ, I have no hope. But if I stand there and God sees his beloved son and his righteousness, I've got eternal hope that I'll spend it with him. In baptism, we make public the fact that we are clinging to that hope. Jesus identified himself with us, sat in those waters, hung on that cross, and now in baptism, we identify ourselves with him. Not with the bills. Heaven forbid we, baptize, or we identify with the bills. We identify ourselves with Jesus publicly in front of the church and one day when we stand before the throne. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together.